Welcome to Curito Connects. I'm your host, Jen, and I've been conversing with friends around the world about life challenges and impactful moments. Conversations on this platform look at answering the questions, how we overcome challenges and how our experiences shape who we are and the work we do today. I hope this work can inspire you on your own personal and individual journey. Let's dive right in. Hello, my guest today is Reese Thomas, founder of Reese Thomas and co-founder of Tidy Butt. So we'll come back to that later. Former Wales pro rugby player turned inspirational speaker and mentor who works on athlete transition, mental health and well-being, addiction and recovery, changing perspective and finding purpose. Hi, Reese, and welcome to Carito Connects. Uh, hi, Jen. Great to meet you. Uh, so for those who are listening and are unfamiliar with Reese, he was born in Johannesburg, South Africa, and played rugby for Wales until becoming disabled at 29 and had to find his new purpose in life. Um, and before we have Reese start chatting with us, I did want to give Kez a quick shout out because I actually met Reese's girlfriend last October when we were at uh, a retreat together and she um, spoke highly of you and how you really encouraged her to attend that retreat. And I said, oh my goodness, I must talk to your boyfriend because this, you know, he would be a great guest on Creator Connects. And fast forward six months later, we here we are um, connecting for the first time. And I'm really excited to have you on and to, for you to share your journey um, with us. So without further ado, uh, Reese, why don't you start off by introducing yourself to our listeners, um, an audience which I'm sure not many um from my end, at least, the Curia Connects audience might not know uh, you or rugby, you know, the rugby world. Um, so we'd love for you to kind of start off with, with that and then kind of, yeah. you know, <laughs> dive yeah. into the yeah. rest. <laughs> yeah, no problem. No problem. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me on, Jen. And yeah, I'm glad uh, you and Kez got to meet at the retreat in Portugal. Um, apparently, she had a phenomenal time and the photos look great. So, um She's been back again since. So, oh, amazing. Retreats are powerful. Retreats are powerful. Yeah. Super powerful. So, yeah, so a little bit about me, I suppose. Um, I was, as you said, um, born in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, oof, a, a long, old time ago. Now I'm 40. So, um, yeah, I was born, I was born in Joburg, um, my dad was Welsh. My mother was actually born in Zimbabwe. And um, from a young lad, just literally loved being outdoors, played rugby um, in school, and then eventually um, started to get good at it. I got um, international honours at 18 for um, at an international week, uh, like a rugby week. For those of people uh, maybe in your network who don't know what rugby is, it's kind of like American football, but without the helmets and the, and the, and the pads. It's probably the best way I can describe it. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of what rugby is. But um, it's quite a big sport in the, uh, around the world, really. But uh, it's South Africa, it's, um, it's like a, it's, the, it's the passion of South Africans. Mm. Um, it was really a catalyst for change, especially after Mandela became president in 94. And in 95, he really was at the forefront of using 
the sport and the World Cup, because it was in South Africa, to galvanize the country after it had been through such an awful time through apartheid, um, to then, you know, have that, you know, that unbelievable man that he was to not, you know, hold grudges and use that victory when we won the World Cup in 95 as catalyst for change for his new rainbow nation. And I was only a 13-year-old boy at that point. I'd never played rugby. But when South Africa won that World Cup, I was like, boom, this is what I want to do when I'm older. So, yeah, by 18 then, I started to play a decent level of rugby. Um, and at the same time, I got offered to go to Wales because my dad was Welsh. And that's what I chose to do. Um, I went over to Wales because I wanted to see what I had two stepbrothers there. Um, I was going to travel a bit anyway, because I was a young man. I was, I'd say, a, a bit of a free spirit, a little bit wild at heart. Um, so I did. That's what I did. I left when I was 18, went to Wales on my own. Um, and that was the start of, my, of a journey for me, whereby um, after about four years of being in, in Wales, um, roughly 18, five years of being <laughs> I was capped. Uh, I was invited to go on tour with the with the Welsh national team, where I got my first international cap to play for my for my country or my new country, whatever you want to uh, call it. And that was an incredible experience. You know, it really was. To all I ever wanted to be from that thirteen year old boy when South Africa won the World Cup was that international rugby player, and I achieved it. You know, little over ten years from that. I never played rugby when I watched that World Cup. And then literally 10, just over 10 years later, I was capped by my by Wales. So it was just a crazy journey. It was super amazing. Uh, on Through those times, um, I met my future, you know, ex-wife now. But um, we had a, a really great time during those years. And I, I um, started a family. Um, she had my ex-wife had two kids from her previous marriage and things were just great for a long time. And, you know, I was on pretty much a six, a six figure wage throughout my whole twenties, which was great, but also it was crazy. Um, and then just like that, uh, at 29 years old, I was in the gym doing a, an interval session on the bike, just completely normal training day. Um, and bang, I had a huge heart attack in the gym. Um, was very, very lucky to survive, but I, I had a life-saving operation. I had a quadruple bypass and that was the beginning of a insane roller coaster that took me the best part of seven years to wrap my head around. Wow. You just took us on a roller coaster ride just now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like looking up, it's up, it's up, it's up. And then just like you said, snap of a finger. Um, I When you were talking about the uh, South Africa win, they made a movie as well, right? Was that Matt Damon yeah. for Invictus, right? Yeah. So I think that's, uh, yeah. that's what you were saying that I was like, oh, yes, I remember this history because there was a movie about it. Um, so, so I think we, you know, you did a, um, a, the segue where you talked about riding the bike and then having your heart attack. At this point, mm -hmm. it sounded like, you know, picket fence, right? You had everything. 
you had mm-hmm. the title, you know, the house, the family, everything that you can imagine, like you said, as a 20 year old mm-hmm. to have excelled and achieved. Um, mm-hmm. And at the point of the turning point, um, how did you get through those seven years and everything yeah. else that came with it? Like, in terms, I guess, I know you do a lot of inspirational motivation speaking um, for the public. Um, so I just thought maybe in this particular episode, you can give some of the highlighted points in terms of mm. what support network did you have? How did you go about, you know, thinking like, okay, my career is over. No, can I play again? Is it possible to play? Yeah. And, you know, just, am I going to survive? Yeah. I mean, all of those things, right? That's, that's. That's what it was like. And um, the realization, obviously, once I woke up from that operation, because I was so out of it, after, obviously, after the general anesthetic, and uh, there was a very serious op, I was in hospital, you know, and a lot of um, different types of drugs. And when I kind of come round and re- realized that actually, do you know what, I was so lucky to survive because the doctors were telling me that. Um, and then at the same time, I couldn't even walk five, 10 meters to the toilet without being completely out of breath and having to stop two or three times. And that was when it kind of started to dawn upon me that like my career was finished. There was no more, no more rugby. And, you know, I was devastated. I really was. It was you know, those next couple of months, as I went home, I started to kind of started to have to adjust to life after the game. Um, it was something I struggled with terribly, that transition, because, you know, it was bad enough that now I was like basically disabled. I struggled to walk any distance at all. But, you know, that thing I loved the most in the world was gone. And I struggled because... You know, my, my ex-wife at the time would say, Reese, will you just speak to me, speak to a psychologist, you know, your friends, like your parents, your brother or sister, just like someone, like anyone. But I, I didn't want to, you know, I, I kind of really went I, in, like insular. Like in a way, I, I kind of isolated. I locked in all my emotions and feelings. And my go-to was just saying, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I wasn't, I wasn't fine at all. And, um, but I didn't know how to deal with it. And that physical battle from my heart attack, that recovery, like over those next six months became a huge mental battle where I just got kind of stuck in my mind and it was just began to, to fester. And this like incessant thinking pattern started to take over me because like I had this past was haunting me with like regret and shame. But then at the same time, I couldn't see a positive future. So I was just stuck in this like linear time space where I was never present. Mm. And I was just in my mind constantly. And it was, it was hell. It was hell. Mm. And, but in 2013, then I got told that I had, a, my health was deteriorating rapidly because my heart was not in a good condition. Um, cause it's, although I survived and the doctor said I was lucky, the toll was that a great deal of damage had been done to my heart. So only, only the right side of my heart survived, like the, the rest of it died. And, um, 
So I struggle to breathe. I struggle to lie flat, walk any distance whatsoever. Very tired all the time, sleeping a lot. And in 2013, I had to go get a checkup because I was struggling bad. And they said um, that I had roughly about 12 months to live and that I needed an emergency heart transplant. Now, I went in for all the tests, and then just at the last hurdle, they did this um, examination called the right heart catheter, where they put this um, catheter and this wire down your jugular in your neck. Um, you're completely awake when they do it. They just put local anesthetic in the neck. It's like, it's crazy. And um, they told me I had pulmonary hypertension, which was the pressure between my heart and lung, which um, was damaged, so that I was actually untransplantable. Now, this was like just another roller coaster. So I was like, well, what now? You know, what do I do? And they were, they were like, well, you, there's only one option for now is that either you can see out the rest of your days. And I was like, what, 12 months? I'm like 30 years old. I got a young family. I'm like, what's the other option? And they were like, right, there's this machine called a left ventricular assist device which we can implant into your heart and it kind of does the job of the left side of your heart where it, it's a, it's a, it's a machine that they literally make a hole in the dead part of my heart, the, uh, the, uh, the left side, they implant it in and then they stitch it to the heart. And then this is connected to a pipe or tube that's connected to a pump. And then there's another tube that's connected back to my aorta. And this is, there's a lead that leads my, um, comes out of my abdomen. And there's a bag that I carry with me, Jen, that's got the batteries in it that keeps me alive. Now, I would show you, I mean, I don't know how many of you, your viewers watch your, your podcast or listen to it, but I'm sure if you look on my site, you'll be able to see what I mean. Um, but this, bat, this machine is run externally by these batteries, or in the evenings when I go to bed, it's run by uh, like, um, a module that's by my bed it's plugged into the mains and it's got to be on 24 hours a day so it's a bit it's a serious bit of kit but what it does is it brings down that pulmonary hypertension and makes me transplantable so they used to call it a bridge to transplant but it's no longer actually that um, so I had this operation then in 2014 and again I was so so lucky to survive I had, um, I didn't wake up from my operation uh, for two weeks post-op. I was in a coma and it was just really, really um, hard time for my family, especially my, my ex-wife, because every time they tried to lighten me, uh, waken me from my coma, I would have these just rages of fit, like fits of rage. And it was just just an absolutely crazy experience. And thank God, uh, after two weeks, I did wake up. Um, but when I woke up now, my reality was completely changed because I was literally now half man, half machine. And, you know, this was something that I, again, found incredibly challenging because my now reality was that from in two years, from my, being a professional international rugby player, like you said, picket fence, you know, the perfect life on paper. Um, to two years later, I've had a huge heart attack, two life-saving operations, and now my, I'm run by a machine 
that the batteries last seven hours a set. If I don't change them after seven hours, uh, it'll give me a 15-minute beeping warning. And then if I don't plug in a new set of batteries, the machine will stop, my heart will stop, and I can die. Um, as well as that, I was then now on a heart transplant waiting list. Like, you can imagine, right? My career's ended. Um, I've got the loss of my the, the game that I loved. I have a lack of identity. I have a loss of purpose. Uh, I can't see a positive future. And now I didn't know what to do. I was lost. But the maddest thing was I was super grateful because I'd survived. And what I saw in that hospital for those months that I was in there was so much death, destruction, pain, suffering. Like I saw so many people die because I was in a ward called coronary, uh, the coronary care um, ward. And there was also another in ITU. And it was just, it was really bad. You know, I saw a lot of people die, all ages, um, all sexes. And it was, it was something I struggled with as well. Yeah, I was just going to ask you after you illustrated that storyline, like, how did you remain um, optimistic and positive, right? Because I think for, to stereotype a little bit and to generalize, a lot of people who go through, not even to the extent of what you just described, but just an yeah. Ill, illness, right? An autoimmune disease uh, diagnosis or, you know, any other kind of health-related um, issues that it's mm -hmm. kind of like, people get very down, right? There's, and I, and I know you did too, but it sounds like you, you were very grateful. You were very grateful and acknowledged like I'm alive. Whereas yeah. some people might just be like, why am I still alive? Like, what's the yeah. point of being alive? Right. So yeah. I think that's, that's very special that you were able to recognize mm -hmm. that in front of you. Um, to yeah. It sounds like it, that really helped you keep motivated and going forward plus also your family your kids were young at the time too and you know like to yeah. keep going for them as well right uh, but I was mm -hmm. actually also curious to ask your younger self prior to this accident yeah. did you also mm -hmm. always have such positive attitude and mindset towards you know the game towards your teammates um, you know as a mm -hmm. captain of the team uh, and I wondered if that was something that you you know it translated towards your recovery process as well, right? Um, and were you yeah. curious? Uh, we didn't talk about this, but I was just wondering, like, in terms of having a heart attack at such a young age, is that something mm. that was, like, genetic? Or was that something that there's no answer? Like, science has no answer to that either? Or you just overexerted yourself as a professional athlete? Yeah. Wow. It's a loaded question. So, oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll try. I'll try and remember all of it. But um, yeah, so I, I think from a young age, you know, I'm a Leo. Um, <laughs> you know, I I love being around. I love being around people. We had a really big family um, in in South Africa. You know, my mum's two sisters and her husbands, my grand and granddad were from my mum's side. You know, so we were always at one of their houses, always playing, always outdoors. So, like, you know, that connection with my family was good. You know, but they were they were we were also party animals. So, you know, it kind of came with you know later in life, I would find difficulty with um, containing that, should we say? But you know, that family environment, that love, 
that, so you know the connection is what i loved growing up yeah. i loved friendship i love love you know it took me a long time to understand that i love love being loved giving love but i only that's i only understand that now in the last like two years like i didn't know what that was really you know um but yeah i've always been enjoyed being in teams around people it's thriving with competition and um you know i was super competitive yeah so yeah growing up i was definitely drawn to all those types of team sports and people really in general and friendship uh, and that gave me a huge window of tolerance, I believe, to deal with the trauma when it did hit. Um, so, yeah, for sure. And the resilience that I learned through my the school, I was in boarding school in Johannesburg, you know, and had an incredible uh, group of friends that was carved out of adversity because it was bloody hard, right? The school that I was in, corporal punishment was still, was still um, then. Um, so... You know, in that boarding house, we made close friendships. I still have to this day. Um, those are the friends that helped to pay for me to go into rehab when after my second uh, heart attack, my second operation, when I went off the rails. That, that, that's the, the connection and the friendship we, we had. In So, yeah, growing up was very much like that. And what was the second part of your question, Jen? Uh, the second question was, I asked, like, the heart attack you had, um, oh, did yeah. science, were they able to explain to you how that happened? Was it, like, genetic? Was it yeah. because as an athlete, you overexerted your body? Um, I, I was curious if uh, yeah. you have an answer to that. Yeah. The why? Yeah, so the why? I, yeah. So I actually had no underlying heart disease. I had no family history. Um I was, I'd never used steroids in my life, which was the first question the doctors asked me. Um, the other question was, had I used substances um, and how regularly? And I was, you know, we of course I used substances. I mean, everyone's experimented in their lives. You know, during my professional career, I certainly wasn't an addict. Um, I used, but it was, you know, uh, it was irregularly. At best, and most often in the off season, if I did, you know, I did obviously at times use, but um, some sorts of drugs. But it was mostly just drinking. Like the culture yeah. was based around alcohol, and it was yeah. that was the culture, and it was like the norm. So you know, although I did the norm to an excessive level, I never drank in the weeks. But um, I was excessive. But tell me a player that wasn't in the times that I played. So, you know, that's just how it was. And uh, I'm not justifying it. It's just the truth. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so it was, um, you know, there was nothing. I had, when they did actually get to my, my heart, they did say that I had thin artery walls on the left side of my heart, which they weren't sure if it was from birth or um, that it was th that it had developed through my life. Um, so they said all that extra stress of, you know, the, the amount of conditioning that I had, the gym, the, the, the contact of the sport, but also the mental, emotional and physical stress, which they don't, the doctors kind of dis, I don't know. They, they didn't think that, they never mentioned that, but, I believe 
you know, the mental, emotional, and physical stress had took a big toll on my in my heart space. Um, for sure, for sure. And can I ask, like, during that time, how did you? I mean, I I understand the the process of the emotional, mental side of it. Like, oh my god. Yeah. What am I going to do? Like, I'm not the international famous rugby player anymore. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't look like the picket fence picture that we talked about earlier. What am I going to do? What's my new identity? But also like the physical part, right? So like you mentioned earlier, it was very difficult for you to breathe to even just take five steps to go to the bathroom or you were resting a lot, um, you know, to go from a professional athlete, you know, clocking in very rigorous trainings and being super, super fit to completely, right, like you said, like not even able to breathe properly. Um, How long did that recovery process for you take to like, I guess, in a way, it's like, you know, when I I guess soldiers or, you know, other um, individuals who go through physical, um, accidents and they have like that physical yeah. part of the recovery right and the pain yeah. of how your your body feels right and then mm-hmm. at, okay so then i then i have this other question in terms of like how did you get the correct rehab or understanding because mm-hmm. i i know you're also quite you have that spiritual side of you as well the because yeah. kez told me <laughs> but just mm-hmm. how did you how did you then eventually I always wonder, like, how do people get access to those information, right? And to to try mm-hmm. to keep trying, because at this point, you're 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 trying out different things, and you know, mm-hmm. whoever's throwing things at you to be like, this will help you heal, or this will get you back on your feet, right? You're just open to all yeah. these different things. So, if yeah. you could share with us a little bit about that, you know, physical, mental, emotional recovery process to kind of help you get to your new identity and, you know, working out things with your, your family and, and all that too, you know, I know that was a mouthful, but I think, you know, what I was trying to ask. (laughs) I think I've got where we're going. Um, if if, I'll, I'll I'll give it a bit. So, um, so basically, yeah. So after my second op in 2014, when I had this pump, obviously from losing the game in 2012, it was just an emotional roller coaster. So, you know, like you said, physically broken um, from being super active, athletic. Uh, I loved swimming. I loved, you know, all, all fitness, running, you know, being on, the, in, on a bike, you know, all of the above. I was very active. If I went on a holiday, I liked to be, to do activities and stuff like that. And then just like that overnight, bang, um, couldn't do any of it. And then when, once I had this machine and you've got this wire coming out of my stomach, I can't go in the water. Um, I had to be super careful where I was going. I was almost confined to by where I could travel, um, by where there was a hospital that could accommodate me in the event that I had an issue. So I did. I felt, I felt that I lost my life. And I didn't know what to do. And although I did to start, had a, an amazing, and I not to start the whole time, I had a great support network. You know, I had a family, a super supportive um, ex-wife. I had uh, young kids. So like I had my why, um, but I didn't know that because I was in so much pain, emotional and mental. And then at the same time, you know, I had a, I got let down by the game 
I got let down by the game, you know, the game that I gave, you know, 10 years professionally to my life, to my country, put, you know, in, in the game. When my accident happened, they all went missing. There was no one that came out to help me. Uh, and that was a real kick in the teeth because as well as suffering with, uh, with, with my own new life circumstance, the support my rugby family had um, left me hanging in my, t- my time of desperate need. So that was a real low point for me. Uh, and it really took me into the darkness. And that's when things started to really get bad. And, you know, I was having severe panic attacks, anxiety attacks. And I never even knew, if you had asked me, Jen, two years before, what was a, a anxiety? What was a panic attack? I wouldn't have been able to tell you. And if someone told me they had those things, I probably would have laughed at them because that's, you know, that was my mindset at the time. I was like this rugged rugby player, like, get on with it, you know, don't be a pussy. Come on. You know, like that would have been my, that would have been my response to someone that said they were having those issues. Um, You know, my compassion and empathy was maybe offline, should we say at this point, uh, pre, pre this heart attack. Um, And then, through those next few years, it was just, it's hard to, to describe to you the depths of, a, of my soul that I went down into the, you know, the absolute darkness, that feeling of loss, the feeling of grief, the feeling of um, who am I, I, I lost emptiness, nothing could fill it the most beautiful family and children, all my friends, my, my mum and dad, um, material wealth, all of that brought me no, no solace, no happiness. It brought me nothing. And because I was just stuck in my mind constantly and, you know, wait now that with this machine allowing me to be on the heart transplant waiting list, I was scared. I didn't want to go to hospital any, anymore. I didn't want to go see all those people dying all the time. I didn't want to die myself. You know, on, on paper, I would say I'm not scared of dying. It was bullshit. I was absolutely petrified of dying. Um, and that was the thing. I was wearing masks all the time and it, just putting up facades and these walls around me and not letting anyone in. And um, I had to seek help to deal with my panic attacks. And I did that through... Uh, through a, uh, just a normal therapist to learn how to do some breathing techniques. And then from that experience, that's all I wanted to do. I didn't want to delve into my issues, my past. I just was like, that'll do two, two or three sessions to learn how to cope and I'll move on. Because my coping mechanism didn't come through that. My coping mechanism was one that I was imprinted in me from my whole life. And whenever I'd had a bad time, you know, when I had a feelings of, emotional, mental, physical distress, my go-to was alcohol. And um, because it just made me, you know, oh, it's fine. I'm just going to go get pissed and I'll feel great after because that's what's always been the way. And now in this situation, this light, you know, I'm not in a good state of health. I'm run by a machine. I'm on the heart transplant waiting list. But that wasn't enough to, to persuade me from doing it. Now, my heart was in a shit condition. I was literally on a fluid restriction because of my heart 
uh, was in bad shape. I could only drink two and a half liters of any fluid a day. But unfortunately, when I got post that op from 2014, by about 2016, I couldn't deal what was going on in my mind. I just couldn't, I couldn't deal. And I needed to escape. And my mode of escape was, like I said, alcohol. So, you know, I, I wasn't like a typical brown paper bag alky. I was more like your Friday, Saturday, Sunday drinker. But like when I would drink, I would drink until I blacked out. I would, I would exceed my two and a half liters of fluid a day. Um, at first, you know, two and a half liters was just maybe a few pints of beer. Uh, but then that wasn't doing the job. Then it became spirits. So then I would drink, you know, two and a half liters of gin, vodka, tequila. Um, and then, you know, every, every so often on a Sunday, I, I loved wine. Um, and that would be it. I would end up just getting sloshed on red wine. And it was the, you know, what I did through those years between 2016 and 2019, where my alcoholism was at its worst, um, you know, I, I managed to pretty much destroy every relationship in my life. Um, I was in terrible shape. I was smoking cigarettes. And I was just basically on a, on a destruction course to dying. It was only a matter of time. I mean, it's a miracle, Jen. I mean, this. it's a miracle that I'm here today because when I was intoxicated to those levels with this machine, like I said, these batteries have a shelf life. You know, they're 50, if they last seven hours and I would pass out drunk, I'd wake up in hospital beds, police cells, taxis. But, you know, sometimes my friends would find me and these batteries would be beeping. And they would have to ring my wife, uh, my ex-wife, at 2, 3 in the morning and say, um, Paula, what do we do? Um, Reese is beeping. And she would obviously be distressed, have to tell them he's got these machine, these batteries in his bag, pull them out and change them, or I was going to die. And because I, I couldn't wake up because I was too intoxicated. Now, this happened for almost every weekend for three years. And like I said, it, it's honestly a miracle I'm here. And you know, I didn't really properly understand how bad a place I was in because I was in it. I was in my full suffering, in self-pity, in denial, and in my mind. And I didn't want anyone's help. Even my children were writing me letters begging me to please stop drinking because I'm going to kill myself, all this kind of stuff. And I, did, I just couldn't. It was too much. And luckily for me, it all changed in my life. My life just turned around. Uh, I, had a, uh, I crashed my car drunk on the 1st of September in 2019. And that was the catalyst for change for me. Now, I didn't change straight away. I actually stopped drinking. That was the day I stopped drinking. But I cross-addicted um, using other things, uh, people, um, still manipulating, not, you know, gaslighting, narcissism. Uh, grandiose, all these types of issues were still prevalent until um, eventually on the 1st of February 2020, my best friends from school, my dad and my half-brother chipped in and staged an intervention and sent me to rehab. Wow. Mm. So many thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> And, and about the spirituality question you asked, Jen, in that house, in that rehab house, yeah, 
that that is where it that cha- those 28 days changed my life and through that desperation and pain and suffering mental emotional and physical was where i found peace and and i i, I what i can only call um an awakening and that's when that's where my journey really began. Wow. Okay. So I had I was like writing all this stuff down while you were talking. Um, I wanted to ask. Oh, right. Okay. So when you, had, <laughs> I feel like this conversation just can keep going. So you, when you had said earlier on, you know, it's like you're. It was basically you're just kind of going down this black hole, right? So then you're, you, yeah. you, you, it's like nothing could fulfill you at that point. And I, mm-hmm. and I, and I, I'm, this is more of a question in hindsight, you know, now that you're looking at it from, from here, you know, to the past, but like, what do you think at that time you were seeking for? Right. So, you know, you mm-hmm. said earlier, there was like emptiness and loneliness, maybe mm-hmm. a sense of like anger. Cause that the whole team, like you said, and the whole industry in itself kind mm-hmm. of like moved on. It's like, you no longer exist. You know, you, you, you gave your time 10 years. Oh, you had this health incident Bye. like, that's it. You know, like, and it's like gone. Yeah. So, so, so I'm sure there's like, you know, there's a lot of feelings and, but at the same time, like you said, you know, very loving family, your ex-wife, um, you know, very supportive and was with you all the way. Plus, you know, caring Mm -hmm. for your children and, you know, all that, like, what, but then it's funny because earlier on you also said like you felt very grateful for being alive, right? So I'm just yeah, yeah. curious when you look back, it's like what do you feel? Or and then when you went to rehab and like you said, that's when everything changed mm-hmm. for you. Because I guess it's a similar question. Like, what did you find at peace with, right? So like that that void yeah. you were seeking, but then like you managed mm-hmm. to find it in rehab, like a awakening of like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. it's that, I, mean, I know yeah. it's a lot too, but I think you understand yeah. where I'm getting yeah. at. Yeah. So, so the, the, you know, the, the, the gratitude thing that you mentioned was when I came out, you know, pre all this craziness in two, 2014, 14, yeah. yeah, after my, my second operation uh, for the machine was, you know, cause I had seen so much death and destruction, Jen, and, you know, and I, 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 like I said, I, I've, I love life. I do. I've always loved life. And when I left hospital and, I, and being in those wards for so many lengths of time, months, months at a time, like leaving the hospital and going back to my family and my dogs was like, oh, you know, so happy, so happy. But that happiness had a shelf life because when I was just sat around the house, sat in my thoughts, thinking about the things I could have done better, things I wished I never had done, um, how things could have been different, how my career would have carried on. I was going to, I'd uh, pre-contractually agreed to move to France with a club for three years in um, Biarritz, which didn't play out because of my heart attack. So like a lot of stuff like that dwelled in my mind. Um, A lot of negative thoughts about, the person I was, the person I, I, that I had become, that no positive things in my life. I couldn't, I couldn't do exercise. I couldn't even go for a swim. I couldn't shower every day. Like all these things start to give me a terrible, I mean, I didn't have a great um, amount of 
what's the word? You know, not confidence, but my self-esteem was never great. I always masked it in many ways because of beliefs that I had about my body or um, maybe something about my image. So like always was trying to over overcompensate for that, you know, and alcohol was a great tool for that as well. But, you know, once, once obviously when I got into that space where I was grateful, the months that followed and the, the years that followed and the lack of identity that formed from the loss of my, of the game that I loved, because my entire life, that's all I ever did. That's all I ever thought I was good at. So like, you know, rugby was the sport that I played. It wasn't who I was, but I believed it to be the other way around. You know, I believed that I was my sport and that was all I was ever good at. So it was a huge, you know, loss of, of identity. And, and then when, without my purpose and because I had an insurance policy that was paying me monthly, it was a payment protection policy. I took out for myself to cover myself in the event that I had an injury Never in a million years did I think it would be a heart attack, but thank God it covered me. So that money actually covered me every month. So I didn't actually, ha I, I couldn't work, but I had still income coming in, comfortable income, where I could stay in this house, have the cars, and I have the family go on these holidays. But that, none of it mattered because those next months, I was just completely overcome with this mental darkness. And to the point where I just ruined my whole life, just ruined it uh, and took my family with it, you know, unfortunately. So, um, so it was so challenging, super, super challenging. But um, from the back of that, you know, going into the, re going into rehab was just such, such medicine, such medicine on every angle was, you know, intense group and one-to-one -one therapy. Probably the first time in my whole adult life I'd been honest. Um, completely vulnerable. That was the overwhelming feeling because I was having to share with strangers about all the deepest, darkest lies and secrets and awfulness that I had uh, brought on, um, on myself and my family all those immoral things that I'd done through my life, um, you know, and the mad thing is, you know, I, I try to hide them all, but I couldn't because we all can't, you know, the body keeps the score, Jim, you know, you can try and bury them, but they there. And then in the end, they made me sick. It, it grew my shadow to the point when I, I was in, I was my shadow. I was all shadow. There was no light. It was just dark. And when I started to then, you know, peer into my soul and find out at the deepest depths, just being by sharing with these strangers, it started to change, started to heal. It brought me understanding. And with the education side of the rehab, when about substances, about why I feel like I felt, about sharing, about hearing others share their pain, and they're suffering to realize I'm not alone in this journey. Like all these things in the same place, I was just, it started to pull me out. Mm. And then, and then once I came out of that, 
it just brought me to this place. It broke me. It, I was, I was broken. I was empty. I felt heavy. I was just in a state of rawness, like a rebirth. And then it was just trying to then come back through life and, and to understand that I had a new chance, an opportunity and to help others, but to also to discover who I was. Cause I didn't know I was yeah. 37 years old. And all of a sudden I was like, who the fuck am I? Yeah. I don't, I actually don't know. <laughs> what a great <laughs> place to start though. Right. So I was like, Oh my God. And then I started to question everything. I was like, well, who is God? Like where are they from? You know, because I was, I was maybe, uh, and I wasn't religious. I didn't really believe in any any organized religion or anything like that. So it just sent me on a wildest journey. And you know, I went on. It took a lot more than that. But when I left rehab, it took me on another path and so much therapy and so many amazing people. And it all just aligned, and it was all built on values on integrity and but most importantly was having a why and having a purpose and building my identity but my you know that came through through a lot of work inner work and outer work because my family was sick of apologies you know my children was didn't want to hear no more sorries it didn't mean anything so, like, it was only time for action. Action was the only thing that was going to heal the wounds that I had created and the trauma that I had imparted on my children. It was the only action that would have worked. So that's what I did. And it was, you know, here we are today, three and a half years later, sober, and, um, you know, and lost my marriage and the pain that came through that with my children. But I'm starting now just to now see my children be, begin to settle into their new lives. So, mm. you know, it's been an immense journey of self-discovery. The, the, the most beautiful journey, but it came with immense challenge. Oh, my goodness. Wish this is a physical situation so hugs can be involved here. But um, <laughs> I, it's a virtual, virtual hug. I, I did want to ask you, um, gosh, uh, kudos to your ex-wife. Um, that's a whole, she must have her own story as well. Um, you know, I hope she had support too during those years you were, you were going through all that. Um, I cannot imagine uh, what she was going through as well and, and to really be there by your side and uh, raising the kids too, right? I actually wanted to ask you, um, you had mentioned... Yeah, you had mentioned uh, briefly, um, you know, no more saying sorry, taking action. And I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could share with us a little bit, like just some examples of like, what were some actions you actually started taking, whether it was like with your parents, mm -hmm. with your ex-wife, with the kids, um, you mm -hmm. know, and your support network at the time, who probably at this point was just like, oh, here he goes again, like, whatever. You know, like, yeah. we're not going to believe mm. it until he actually does something. Like, he's just saying it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so. it's, it's, it started small, Jen. You know, for me, it was just about, because early, early out of rehab, it was intimidating, you know. Like, I was, I was petrified. 
because I was having to go into this big, bad world. You know, being in rehab's great, right? You're surrounded by addicts, alcoholics. It's, it's, it's familiar. And we've all got similar stories. But then I'm going back to that judgment, to those, to those same people, places, and things that there was that I remember that brought that darkness to my life. So that was where the challenge really began. And at the, at the time, it was, you know, taking it minute by minute, hour by hour, sometimes just day by day. But it was just start small. And for me, start small was get going to AA, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, do the time there. So then I was just like, I got a sponsor. I started to walk through the 12 steps of recovery. So with what I, the knowledge that, and the wisdom that I had learned in the house in rehab, I then started to get from the sponsor. But it, it was a, a two-way thing because he wasn't going to carry me, you know. He was going to – he if, if I didn't do what he asked me to do, he was going to just – he was going to walk away. But I was determined because of my children, especially my children, that I wanted to change. You know, I owed it to them. You know, I owed it to my ex-wife too, like you said, Jen, for everything that she did and, and the unbelievable rock that she was. And she didn't deserve that treatment. You know, but that it is it's unfortunate situation. And um, but from that point, then I started to build and that building came through understanding. It came understanding of identity for who I was, a greater self-awareness and awareness around me um, to start soaking up some literature but also to start coming up with some fundamental routine changes. So, um, like I said, I had an awakening. So, like, I didn't want to just be led down a road of believing in any old God because I was inquisitive. I want to know the truth. I want to know who am I? So who is life? Like, where do we come from? I don't believe anything that's been said. So I'm going to start from the bottom. And that was the journey that really showed me the way and, you know, given that, that routine. So, you know, I was praying at the time. I was praying to any God. I was praying to all the gods. I was literally praying to God, uh, Buddha, Allah, um, all, the, all the Indian gods, um, my, everything. It was everything and everyone. Like good, I just saw God as good orderly direction at that point. But that's why I always say, like, desperation is an incredible tool for transformation. And I was desperate to, to make up for, for what I'd done uh, and be a dad and a role model for my children after they had seen the absolute destruction of alcoholism and what it did to my family. So, you know, that routine meant getting up, praying, journaling, doing a gratitude list, doing my work on my 12 steps, going to meetings, um, and starting to find my way out of the wilderness and mm. to, to a path that aligned with me as a person. And that led me to then an addiction psychologist who I did some amazing work with. Um, and after that, then starting to find my feet. Because when I, when I left the house, I knew one thing for sure was that I wanted to help others. I wasn't sure in what capacity. But I knew 100% helping others was what I wanted to do. So 
I wanted to share my story because I felt like so many athletes go through what I'd been through. And although I'd been through the health side of things and how the physical health then massively impacted my mental health, I was really drawn to just sharing. I just wanted to share. And I've, I felt that that vulnerability and honesty that I found in the house was like this magic. So I was like, right, I'm just going to go and start telling people. I don't know who, who wants to listen, but I'm going to start telling people. And then that's when it led me to speaking. And, and you know, in lockdown happened, which for me was at the most incredible time because family was uh, uh, began to split. I had a lot of time on my own, which I couldn't deal with in the past. But now was like this, oh, my God, I'm feeling into this new space. This new, this, new human, this new literature, these new gods, um, you know, and finding this way through life. And it was just, it was, I had a new reverence for life. I, I, I would, I noticed things I never saw before. The colors were more vibrant. Food tasted different. Um, I was just, I would wake up and just cry with joy that I was alive and that I had another chance at life. And that, that, that utter determination and, and just, like I said, reverence for what I'd experienced and was just a, a catalyst for huge change. And then I just started to share my story and, and in lockdown on a, a um, an app called Clubhouse where I met some amazing yeah, people. Do you remember that? Yeah, I so, remember yeah. <laughs> But from that app, right, I met some such powerful people that were like, Reese, tell your story, become a speaker, get a website, like get a coach, um, ah. do, a, do a vision board, you know, manifest. And I was like, what does all these things mean? Like do affirmations. <laughs> and I was like, what's affirmation? And then all of a sudden, affirmations manifestations vision boards um speaking about my truth and then this is like how all these things i just started to integrate and now don't get me wrong this didn't fix my home life my home life was in pieces on the floor so also then what i did was um start to try you know at first it's like oh i found this new way it's the only way you've got to do this way Telling my kids, you've oh my god, you've got to try doing this and praying, and it's amazing. And come and meditate with me. And, and my kids are like, "What? Shut up! What are you on about?" You know. And, it's like, <laughs> and I'm so excited, right? I'm so excited. But I then, would love to meet. I would love to meet all of them at some point. <laughs> it's yeah, like, well, yeah, our dad just goes through these phases apparently in his life. You know, he's like this alcoholic, dysfunctional person for like five years, and then suddenly yeah. he's like this spiritual. Please manifest. I'm going to sage the room, and we're going to manifest this idea. <laughs> right. So yeah. So obviously, so hard for the kids too because they're like, "Who the hell is this guy?" It's like, and now I'm even what three and a half years later, you know, found my space. I'm comfortable in my skin. I love myself. I pray. I meditate. I I'm a breath. I'm practicing to be a breathwork pra uh, practitioner. So I hold breathwork uh, in my house uh, with, with other people. I hold space for people with mentorship. 
and and you know a bit of life coaching type stuff i suppose um i became a public and inspirational speaker so all these things came from that place you know and it never stopped it never stops because every time i think i've found something or i've healed part of myself i find another practice another somatic practice or another type of therapy or another human you know that's someone that opens my mind and, and my consciousness and shows me a different way and a different way of dealing and healing and so it's just like the more i learn the less i know jen that's kind of how it feels mm-hmm. i just i wanted to it's so funny because you just transitioned for me very fluidly because i was going to ask you like well then how did you find your new identity but you kind of just like went right into it and i was just going to add saying like well you know that whole process of like sharing you know, like what you just said of how you got to this point of, um, you know, your website and, you know, the work you're doing right now by giving back and helping other people is actually also your your own healing process, right? Because as you continue to share, it's kind of like, like you said, the rehab home, right? Like, as you continue to share and be exposed to all these, you know, beautiful individuals who are coming to you because they're inspired by your story um, and your recovery path and your journey. It's like you are constantly learning about yourself too in that process, right? So yeah. I think it's it's a very uh, beautiful way to see it when, when then to your point earlier too, it's like when we always... I think society constructs us in a way where we feel like, oh, by sharing, by being naked, airing out our dirty laundry mm-hmm. out there makes us vulnerable. But then that's your truth, right? It's like, well, that's really how I feel. That's that's how my emotions feel about X, Y, and Z mm-hmm. thing. And when you put it out there and you're being honest and authentic, then you attract mm-hmm. those other types of people who relate to you, right? And then yeah. with that energy, it's like, it uplifts everybody within your community, right? So I think it's really, you know, about trying to encourage more people to do, to do that, right? And I think for with Carito Connects as well, that's why I love having different guests here to share yeah. these kind of journeys. Because to your point earlier, when you said about going to rehab and you're like, you know, I was amongst people who could share similar stories. Like they were going through mm. addiction, et cetera, et cetera, and you feel safe. And it's like, you're yeah. not alone. You're, you're not the only one going through these these things. And of course, you know, we, sh- we, we shouldn't say like, Oh, I, I, I'm so grateful. I have a better than someone else. Mm. But sometimes that's the case, right? You kind of feel like you're, you're at your worst, but it's like, you hear yeah. someone else's story and you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> but, but that's, I mean, that's the comfort of it. Right. Um, yeah. so I, uh, you know, we could keep going, uh, but I want to be mindful of the time. And again, I want to thank yeah. you so much for sharing what you shared with us um, in mm. the last hour. Uh, and before yeah. I we wrap up, I mean, I have a few questions, but can you also talk about, um, t- uh, was it Tiny Butts? Is that what it's called? Like, like the, tiny, the, butts. <laughs> tiny Butts. <laughs> Tiny butts, that didn't sound right. Yeah, tiny butts. Could you talk about, um, so you mentioned you do motivational speaking, you do coaching, breathwork coaching, et cetera. Um, And Mm. then uh, tiny butts, like, so could you tell us a little bit about this organization? Yeah, so it's, after um, I came out of rehab, a good friend of mine who uh, was actually my first rugby captain when I moved to Wales when I was 18. um, I hadn't seen him for a long time, but he had been suffering uh, with mental health issues like depression and low mood for a long time. 
And um, he, through his suffering, he decided to start an online Facebook group during lockdown um, just for people to talk about how they were feeling and all this stuff. And then on the back end of that, he, he, he formed a charity. And now when I came out of rehab, I reached out to him and I was like, well, what are you doing with the charity? And he was like, well, I haven't got any plans as such. I just want to just help people. And I was like, well, so do I. So um, let's do something. And then we combined forces. And now we're here like, what, two and, a, two and a bit years later. And our charity has grown so much. So for those of you that are probably wondering why does he call his charity Tidy Butt, uh, it's where I live in Wales, there's there's like valleys because it's very hilly in Wales, ah. a, lot, a lot of beautiful mountains and like a lot of the villages are in the in the valleys. And um, in a lot of the, uh, the community up there, the, the, the way that they say that they're OK, especially in where my friend was from in Abertillery, that he would say that I, um, if someone said, how are you? And they go, oh, I'm tidy, but so it's basically oh. just slang in the Gwent Valleys in Wales for I'm OK. So, but obviously, it's a, it's a play on words because obviously people aren't okay. They're just lying. So, um, so, yeah, so through the charity, we started small. We just started with a talking group. And then within a matter of months, it grew and organically, completely organically. And we came up with a mental health presentation, which we delivered to everything from schools in from the education sector to up to all the way up to corporate sports clubs everything in between so um and then in the education sector we got dragged in there i don't know how but um it's been a roller coaster so we do workshops mental health presentation activity days all sorts of stuff we try to incorporate somatic practices into our um um into our workshops as well with the kids because you know I don't believe children are benefiting from the education system as, as it currently stands sitting in classrooms for long periods of time, you know, they, and their mental health aren't great. You know, the young people in our society are, are struggling big time. So it's something that I'm passionate about. I have a huge amount of life experience in this area. And, you know, we also offer um, free activities in our local area in Wales, where we do um, cold water immersion in, in like free uh, open swimming, we do um, wellness walks with and just creating community, Jen, because that's mm. what we want as human beings. Yeah. We want community. We we want, like you said, like-minded individuals. We want that vibration away from pubs, clubs, nightclubs, that we can feel family, tribe, and, and speak to others openly without judgment and, and feel safe. You know. Um, so that's a lot of what we did with the charity and it's just been, yeah, it's been such an amazing thing. And Kez has joined. She's our admin now. So. Oh, awesome. That's She's so cool. Yeah. All good. <laughs> cool. Okay. So how I usually conclude is I ask, yeah. um, these three questions, uh, and I can repeat them if you forget. Uh, you had actually mentioned earlier um, when you started, when you said, you know, you had your awakening, you started getting very curious and asking a lot of whys and you started reading a lot. So I wanted to ask if you would recommend, you know, you can list a few if you have more than one, but books that, you know, it doesn't have to be books. It could be like a yeah. podcast or it could be an individual because um, you did also mm. mention like your addiction psychologist, um, but mm. just, you know, 
people or books or things that really helped you, like that really resonated with you during this yeah. journey that like you oftentimes would just be like, you know, you meet somebody and then they're telling you their story and they're like, read this book or like, listen to this podcast yeah. or like, go check out this addiction psychologist. What mm. would those resources be that you would share with us today? Well, um, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle was probably the most profound bit of literature. I And it came at, it couldn't have come at a better time for me. Uh, it was quite literally a life-changing experience. And um, so grateful, so grateful for that, for that book. Um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, I found also a great read and it helped me in many ways. Um, and off the top of my head, those are the two books that really stand out for me, Jen. Um, I'm not going to just make one up because I've, you know, just to fit the. I tell you what I have read recently, which was super interesting because it's my breath work. It was The Body Keeps the Score. Ah, oh, yes. Classic. That's a classic one. Yeah. Yeah, really enjoyed that actually. Um, and two more questions. What keeps yeah. you grounded now? I'm, I want to say it's maybe probably breath work for you, but maybe it's something mm. else. Uh, and then what two cent? Okay, no, I should say what two. I mean, it would be like what two cent would you tell the audience that's listening to this episode um, who resonate with your story? What would you say to them? Or in Another way you could put it is like, what would you tell your younger self? Mm. I guess like, then what you know now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If that... <laughs> what, what was the first question? What keeps you grounded? Oh, yeah. So I suppose, you know, in many ways, you know, complacency uh, and ego or something that I am trying to stay as, as aware as possible um, about those areas. Um, but, you know, my kids, my kids ground me, you know, um, I use a lot of practices to keep me grounded too. Like I said, breath work, meditation, um, different types of medicines, you know, whether it be plant or otherwise um and and community you know and, and good friends and my and my, obviously cares she she will let me know if i'm uh, straying off the path <laughs> but um so yeah that's what keeps me grounded and yeah so what would i tell my younger self i wouldn't have listened jen i <laughs> I could have given my younger self the best advice you could give any human being in the world. And I just would have gone, whatever. I just wouldn't have listened. That's how I was. That's the human being I was at that part of my life. I didn't want anyone's help. I didn't want anyone's opinions. I was so stubborn and so pig-headed. No. <laughs> I, was, I was very driven. At when I was younger, like to get where I wanted to go, and I didn't take advice from anyone. Mm. I had, but what? I had but what would? 
what would that advice be? Or what, what would you say to other people now that you encounter yeah. who are in that state that you were like just right. four or five years ago? Yeah. I, you know? I, to, to have a greater self-awareness. To have a greater self-awareness. And, and to be present, Jen. Because we miss so much of our lives, so much of our children's upbringing our partners, we don't, we don't see them. We don't, we're never present enough mm -hmm. and never in history, you know, certainly recent history anyway, has it been more challenging to be present. There's so many distractions mm -hmm. everywhere. And there's a little distraction that we hold in our hands 90% of the day, which stop us being present so much. And that's yeah. what I wish I'd done because like I had the most unbelievable experiences playing in stadiums full of people, 75,000 people, 60, 50, you know, on a regular basis. I wasn't present. I was in my head. You know, I can't remember half of any of those experiences because I wasn't present. I can't remember a lot of my children's upbringing because I wasn't present. I wasn't present to experience the love that my wife, my ex-wife tried to give me. I wasn't present um, for the birth of my children. You know, these beautiful, wonderful events that happen through our lives, I wasn't there. I was there in body, but I wasn't there in mind mm. because I was, I was distracted. I was gone. I was in the future or the past, or I was there fleetingly. And then out the room. So I can't emphasize self-awareness and presence. If you want to improve your life, 10x. And it's not easy. It's bloody it's not, not easy. Yeah. I mean, with but, especially with technology, it's not, it's oh, not easy. <laughs> it's not. It's not easy. While you were saying enjoy all that. It. Enjoy Sorry. it. Just enjoy life. It's such a gift. <laughs> Sorry, because when you when you were answering that, I actually had one more question that popped into my head. Earlier yeah. on, you had said when you spiraled very deeply that you, mm. um, you know, like burned a lot of bridges with the people in your life, like just, you mm. know, friends and community mm. that, you know, were really there for you and very supportive. Um, yeah. But I guess there's always that feeling of like, everyone's treating me as a victim. I know they mean well. Mm. It's really annoying and frustrating because I don't know who the hell I am. And I'm like really struggling. They don't understand what mm. I'm going through, you know? And so I wanted to ask after you, you know, bounce back, did you then go back and try to reconcile some of these relationships that you kind of like burn bridges with, you know, in terms of like, yeah. Uh, reaching out, I guess, to some of them to, you know, to, mm. yeah, ap I don't know, apologize yeah. or, uh, you know, want to, mm. you know, be like, I'm, I'm here now, I'm present, mm -hmm. I, I've made mm. changes, uh, I apologize for being an ass during those few years. Um, and, mm. and did people, uh, I guess, more or less, you know, were they receptive to it? Or did they kind of go like, yeah, whatever? Because <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I think, I, I mean, the reason I ask is because I think this is a very, um, 
it's a really relatable incident, right? Because that happens mm. a lot of times, you know, I mean, even, mm. even for people who aren't going through what you went through, just in general, like in life, we go through relationships like that, right? You, you, mm. you have falling outs with people, but then like a decade mm. later, you reconcile again, because everyone's going on different journeys and different paths, and you might not be at the same place, you know, mm. like in your 20s, as you were in your 30s, or, you know, whatever, right? So it's, I just yeah. always find that really interesting. And, I thought it would be uh, fun for you to share your process uh, on that part. Yeah. Oh, it's a great question. And um, I had so much apologizing to do, Jen. And I had, I had, you know, like I, I was morally bankrupt right towards the end of my alcoholism, made a lot of terrible choices, mistakes, uh, did a lot of poor value things and um you know i had a lot of amends to make and it took it took me a long time to apologize to all the people that i had been a dick to and that was from doorman when i was in a pub or nightclub and i was and i had said something inappropriate or you know i I had a lot of apologizing to do and i and some of them i really didn't want to say sorry to but that was just um you know ego or whatever it was but I did it, you know, and some of the hardest apologies um, and the people that I had to, you know, forgiveness was was a wonderful lesson for me. And forgiving myself was was where the real money was, where the real juice was, because I had so much work to do there. And it took me a long time to understand that. And it took me about three three years to, to, to begin to really, truly forgive myself. I still sometimes have to um, still do it when a little bit of um, guilt kicks in, but I've done I've done so much so much in that area because um, you can't hold on to the past because you'll get stuck there. So I had to accept it. I had to forgive, and then I was able through time through a greater self awareness from being a man of value for a long time. I can genuinely say that. You know, because once you start to become and live a life aligned with your values, you don't worry about the past so much anymore because there's nothing in there that can bother you. You haven't, you know, not paid for something or let someone down or not said said yes and didn't do it or did something that you really regretted. It, 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 that doesn't, it's not there anymore. So it's such a, it's such a weight off. It's such a better way of living. Um, so it, some of my most sincere apologies have actually only come many, many years after. And I'd apologized at the time, but they may not have been from the heart. Mm-hmm. And over time, when I forgave myself and the compassion and the empathy in me grew and grew and grew, I was then able to give sincere apologies. And you people know when it's a sincere apology. People know. Mm-hmm. You don't have to... Words are, it's the energy, it's the way you deliver it. Yeah. It's the emotion, the feeling. So, big question. Did you forgive the rugby industry and your teammates and yeah. the whole, you know? Yeah. Were, I had you to, a- I had to. <laughs> Like, you know, holding grudges or, or and, and you see this with families a lot and sometimes with friends and, you know, like holding a grudge, I heard a great say, holding a grudge is like giving yourself poison and hoping the other person will die. 
you know. Oh, you, that's a good one. That's yeah. a very good one. You're holding on. You're holding on to energy that you don't need. It doesn't serve you. So, like that person's, good, you know, cause and effect. His karma is going to come for him or her. Right. So just forgive them. I, and I had to forgive because I was so bitter and so resentful and so angry that like with how I was treated or mistreated that I, if I didn't let it go, I couldn't enjoy the fruits of my labor to be proud of what I achieved. This young man who left Joburg at 18 made a career for himself, played at the highest level, like against all odds. Cause I was a hooligan, right? I was a young wild child, didn't listen to anyone. And I achieved everything I ever wished to. So like, I wanted to enjoy that as well and, and not hate it and, and hide my medals and my, my cap and all these things like I used to. So I had to forgive the game. I had to leave it. I'd left the game. I hadn't gone anywhere near it for three years because I needed the space. I needed the space from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but then now with the forgiveness, the game is such an integral part of this wow. identity, right? And yeah. the individuals are helping it. as well. Yeah. <laughs> I, love, I love rugby. I love rugby. I love watching that. Not so much at the moment. It's quite boring and there's some shit new rules, but... Uh, you know, like I want, I want to enjoy the game. I want to go watch my local teams play and all this kind of stuff. You know, but I do yeah. now. I do. That's the mad thing. By making space, by forgiving, I, I've begun to love the game that I that I used to. Yeah. Oh, that's mm. that's so powerful. Um, mm. I am going to put all the resources we discussed in this episode yeah. on the episode resources link below so people can follow you reach out if they're interested yeah. if they're if they're in Wales um, you know yeah. but I think you do stuff online too right so people can reach yeah. out and do sessions yeah. with you online etc uh, thank you so much for your time and for sharing and for your willingness to connect with me someone so far <laughs> away from Wales <laughs> Um, so you know I hope to visit you and Kez sometime too (laughs) yeah that'd be rad yeah for sure so I don't know if you had anything else you want to add before we close off no I'm I'm all good I think I've said everything that needed to be said (laughs) okay thank you so much all right thank you cheers Jen that's all we have time for today thank you for listening to Curito Connects For more Connects content, collaborations, and discoveries set to inspire you on your own individual journey, please head to our website at www.curito.co. Until next time, stay inspired and thank you for joining us at Curito Connects.